Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in Fermina Kim. Coming up on Forum, when you say the word nurse, what comes to mind? Florence Nightingale? A medical worker, likely female, who is assisting doctors who are likely male? In her new book, Taking Care, journalist Sarah DiGregorio goes beyond these stereotypes. She explores the history of nursing and looks at how racism, sexism, and cultural norms have shaped the profession. We talk to her and hear from you. Tell us about a nurse who changed your life. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg, and today for Mina Kim. When I was 25, my appendix burst, but it was misdiagnosed. I was told by several doctors that my gallbladder was inflamed. And the prognosis at the time was to wait in the hospital until the infection relented. Unfortunately, as the days passed, I got more and more delirious, more and more out of it. And then one day, a nurse came into my room, and she laid her hand really sweetly on my right leg. And I nearly jumped off the table because it was so painful. I got this electric shock basically up and down my body. And she called the attending physician in quickly, and she suggested that we order a CT scan. And then it was just a mad scramble. I got the CT scan, and within you know minutes after that, I was in the operating room, and a surgeon was removing my appendix. And the surgeon told me that my abdomen was this nasty, infected, you know, swollen mess. And so looking back, obviously that nurse probably saved my life. And as, as many of us know, good nursing is often the difference between really getting better or not. And journalist Sarah DiGregorio joins us to discuss basically just that, just how important nurses really are. She's written a new book, Taking Care, the story of nursing and its power to change our world. Welcome, Sarah. Leslie, thank you so much for having me and what an incredible story to kick off with. <laughs> well, I think you have one as well. Um, it, it sounds like maybe potentially uh, your interest in, in nursing came from when your daughter was born, who I believe was, was quite premature. And I imagine yeah. there were many, many fraught hours in the neonatal ICU and many nurses tending to you and your family. So was that the moment when, when really your passion for nurses was sparked? Yeah, I would say, you know, that experience with my daughter Mira being born at 28 weeks did really bring home to me the profound power 
and effectiveness of nursing. Um, but actually, I sort of grew up navigating the American healthcare system. Um, I'm an only child, and both my parents were quite chronically ill when I was growing up, and both of them did ultimately die relatively young of their illnesses. And so, you know, I grew up really um, feeling like healthcare systems were this kind of labyrinth that you had to travel with your most beloved people, you know, trying to get them the care that they needed. And I, you know, thinking back on it, I sort of always realized that it was usually nurses that were the people who could really see you and hear you and try to find what you needed. Um, and then, of course, with my daughter, she was in the neonatal intensive care unit for a couple months, and then she needed years of follow-up care to become the spunky third grader that she is today. So, um, you know, both as a mother and as a as a daughter, um, I I saw in my personal experiences how clarifying and effective it can be to have a nurse really give you excellent nursing care. Well, you trace the history of nursing as as far back as <laughs> Neolithic <laughs> times. Um, so, how how given that that long history, how do you define nursing? So, there are lots of different ways to define nursing, and really, there it, it is an almost impossible question. Um, but I would say for the purposes of my book, I came to define nursing as a, a, an independent scientific discipline that is really concerned with maximizing your health and wellness within your context. So that's really understanding, you know, your life, the particulars of your body, but also your family life, your physical situation. So where you live, um, you know, what kind of water you have access to? What is the environment like around you? What is your community like? And so nurses tend to think about health in these very broad, um, very holistic ways. Um, whereas I think um, in terms of, dif you know, differentiating it from medical care, medical care tends to go deeper on the physiology, perhaps, although certainly nurses do study physiology and no physiology. But medicine um, is deeper on the physiology and perhaps narrower, narrower in scope and focus, whereas nursing really is quite broad. And as you said, you can find this kind of skilled, organized care that, um, way, way back, I mean, to prehistory. So for instance, you mentioned in the Neolithic period, yes, you know, there is evidence in the fossil record of people who recovered or were cared for through conditions that would otherwise have, you know, caused their death. So for instance, there was um, the skeleton found of a, of a young man um, in what is now Vietnam. And when the archaeologists discovered his skeleton, they could see that he had a congenital condition that caused um, his vertebrae to be fused. And so looking further at his skeleton, they could tell that he had become paralyzed probably in his early teens. They could tell that from sort of the extreme slenderness of his long bones. Um, and so they deduced that he had this congenital condition that would have um, caused him pretty severe disability in terms of um, being a paraplegic, um, probably chewing and swallowing were quite difficult. And yet this boy lived to be a man. He lived for another 10 years. And so um, there was actually an archaeologist on that dig who had previously worked in nursing. And that young man's body really spoke to her. And um, so she was really the person who started to think about, you know, um, ways that fossils are telling us a story about 
really the ways that our earliest ancestors nursed each other. Um, and she calls it the bioarchaeology of care. Um, and I just think it's a really powerful way to think about ourselves and the evolution of humans and evolution of human communities and societies. Because, you know, we might think of ourselves as this sort of, we dominate each other, you know, we think of ourselves as being the survival of the fittest, uh, some, you know, being defined by that. But in fact, you could make an equally valid argument that we are defined as a species by the fact that we have been organizing care for each other forever, like absolutely forever, organizing skilled nursing care. Um, and I think that that's a really powerful way to think about it. Given that you know, nursing has over the years evolved into being a primarily, you know, woman or, you know, female centric career. Do you think that's because of the sort of the maternal instinct and that sort of nature unfolding? Or is that, you know, culture more driving that? No, you know, I don't think it's maternal instinct. Um, nursing was done by both men and women in the past. Um, and Although I, you know, I'm careful always to say I don't think that there is, you know, there's nothing wrong with maternal caring. It's not that an association with maternal caring is necessarily a negative one. Maternal caring is powerful. But nursing is an independent scientific discipline that um, has been carried out by men and women and people of all genders since, you know, since the dawn of humanity, essentially. And so I think that when we you know, certainly nursing has been gendered in our current context. 90% of nurses are women. And the fact that 90% of nurses are women and the fact that nursing has been gendered in this way um, really plays into the ways that nursing is undervalued, underpaid in our current context. Um, but I think that it's important to remember that, you know, absolutely nursing has been and always has been admirably skillfully performed by people of all genders. Nurses, as long as we're talking about the past, uh, you know, yeah. I love the, the chapter about um, in nurses and midwives were often called charlatans and witches. What was going on there and why were these caring characters, you know, sort of cast this way? Yeah. So in this is a, this is sort of thinking about how did we get here? Right. How did we how did nursing become gendered in this way? Um, the short answer um, in the European and North American context is that when medical schools were established in the Middle Ages, um, they only admitted men, um, with the notable exception, I should say, of the University of Salerno, which is kind of its own separate story. Um, but these new medical schools um, basically created a new kind of practitioner that had never existed before, this idea of a licensed physician. and by definition, by the new definition, physicians could only be men. And not only that, they could only be, you know, men of a certain class, people who could ha have access to these medical schools. Previously, in the European context, you know, there, there was a healthcare, um, there was a healthcare system, there was a healthcare landscape, but it was much more predicated on empirical learning, apprenticeship, you know, learning by doing, um, and knowledge passed down, passed down in lots of different ways, by writing and oral traditions and all these kinds of ways. And it was a chaotic, perhaps to our eyes, it was a, it was a bit more chaotic. There weren't as many strict definitions between, you know, among categories like medicine, nursing, pharmacy, you know, people didn't necessarily think of themselves as doing one or the other. Um, but certainly um, within their context, there was, you know, 
care was provided and people had um, people had systems that they used and there was a certain amount of trust that you might have in your local midwife or your local nurse or healer. But when these medical schools were established in the Middle Ages and when they only admitted men, suddenly it became imperative for the new physicians to define themselves, right? They had to they had to think up a difference between themselves and like the midwife down the block or the healer, you know, across the field. And um, the way that they did that, because in reality, of course, these new physicians, they didn't have CAT scans, they didn't have chemotherapy, they didn't have antibiotics. Everyone was working with something called the theory of the humors, which was um, this idea that, you know, we have um, these four different substances in our bodies and um, illness is caused by an imbalance in one of them. So everyone was working on that assumption in the European context. And... Um, now that these physicians came along, they really had to say, like, actually, we're so different from the healer. We're so different from that nurse. And um, they started to construct this, this difference. And a lot of it really, honestly, had to do with competition, you know, business competition, but also this idea of status um, and of setting yourself apart as a learned man and you're man and you're, you know, you're not like the women. And so what started to happen is exactly what you said, which is, you know, this idea of female healing authority being somehow, um, you know, really dangerous and women are superstitious and midwives might be witches um, and that, you know, you should be a little afraid of this. Mm. And I think, you know, and that kind of that really did take hold that idea. And still takes hold today with sort of the godlike presence of the male doctor and you know the the nurse who is is in some ways less than which we will explore in full detail. We're about to take a break here. We're talking about the role that nurses and nursing have played in our history and what role they play will play in our future. And we're joined by journalist Sarah Di Gregorio, whose new book is Taking Care: The Story of Nursing and Its Power to Change the World. And we want to hear from you, so stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. And we're talking about the role that nurses have played in our history and what role they will play in our future. And we're joined by journalist Sarah DiGregorio, whose new book is Taking Care. And we want to hear from you. How has nursing or maybe a nurse impacted your life? We'd love to hear that story. Maybe you're a nurse 
What keeps you in the profession? Why did you go into the profession? And what would you like to see changed? Give us your thoughts or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. You can give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, let's talk about Florence Nightingale. Can you remind those listeners, many of them probably are very familiar with who she is, but if not, who is Florence Nightingale? Yeah, Florence Nightingale was a nurse, um, <clears throat> a British nurse, and um, during the Crimean War of the mid-1800s, she was the first nurse um, that the British government ever contracted with to organize nursing care for the British military. And so she um, hired and um, organized a group of nurses to go to the front and to um, essentially um, lead and provide nursing care for injured soldiers um, at the British hospitals during the Crimean War. And um, probably a lot of listeners have heard of her spoken as sort of spoken of as the founder of nursing or the founder of modern nursing. Um, and although she, you know, she was quite an accomplished person, um, she certainly, um, you know, there is no one founder of nursing or even a founder of modern nursing. There was um, all nursing before her and nursing while she was nursing and, of course, nursing after her. How would you say that her legacy or who she was sort of helped shape nursing and maybe hurt nursing. Yeah. So it was interesting. So, uh, you know, we were just going through sort of this idea that, um, you know, when the new medical schools were established and suddenly there were these male physicians and they were in charge, um, subsequently from there in the next couple hundred years, you see the idea of the nurse or the idea of the female um, healer or basically anyone who wasn't a physician. Um, the idea of those practitioners, their reputation went way downhill. And that was really part and parcel of the idea of raising up physicians at the expense of everybody else. And so by the time um, the 1860s rolled around, you know, there's a um, there's a Charles Dickinson, Dickens character named Sari Gamp. Um, and she was, um, she's a nurse in one of his books, um, who is drunk all the time and she doesn't care what happens to her patients. And what's interesting about that character is that would have been a very familiar idea for Dickens readers. Um, the idea that nurses were quote unquote low class, they were often drunk, they couldn't be relied upon. So um, that was, you know, that was sort of where where Florence Nightingale picked things up in, at least in the British context, this idea that nurses were not very reputable. Um, but she did have a different idea. So she um, gathered this group of nurses and it was her idea that actually nurses could be, uh, nursing could be a respectable profession. But in doing this, she had to make nursing very palatable for those in charge. So she very, very um, restrictively categorized nurses by class. She didn't particularly want to be working with people she would have thought of as quote-unquote low class. Um, for her, nurses were exclusively women. So she thought of nursing as a trained profession, but she also thought of it as something that only women could do. And that was a very essentialist way of looking at it. Um, and then of course, she was a white woman of the um, British Empire of the time. And so, and she uh, only hired white women and certainly um, 
only considered hiring white women. And in fact, Mary Seacole, who was a biracial woman from Jamaica, came and tried to join Nightingale's group, but was rejected. Um, and and Seacole writes in her autobiography that she was rejected because of her skin color. And so when you think about Florence Nightingale, you know, certainly she raised up nursing in the British context in this sense of, you know, women have something to offer outside the home, but it was only certain women. It was only some women. And, um, and in doing this, you know, she, what I think she did, what I think of as she put nursing in this like restrictive Victorian corset. And she remade this idea of, she, she remade the idea of nursing, um, into this image that would be palatable to sort of the colonial British um, enterprise. And, um, you know, that version really stuck. You know, this is why, you know, her, her version of nursing really spread around the world. It, um, you know, people think of Florence Nightingale as the prototypical nurse. And part of my project was really to break that down because, um, what Florence Nightingale did was really shrink nursing and, and, and make nursing into a very exclusionary, um, project, you know, this idea that it's only women, it's only white women, and we're going to stratify by class very, very restrictively. It's a very hierarchical um, and very exclusionary way of looking at nursing. And I think that um, it's been harmful. It's been really, really harmful over the long term. Makes sense. Yeah. Andy has a question for you. He asks, can your guest speak about the history of nursing immigration to the U.S.? He's thinking specifically about nurses from the Philippines. Any thoughts there? Yes, you know, and I will say that this is um, this is something that um, that is a it's a very deep and complex topic. Um, I'll just give what I know, which is that um, when the United States colonized the Philippines, they decided to establish schools of nursing and medicine there that um, would essentially produce labor that could be then imported into the United States, um, and so nursing. Um, has been, you know, something that many, many Filipino people have done as a part, as, you know, as, as a career and then as a way also to, um, to move to the United States. Um, and all of the inherent, um, you know, injustices of the colonial project there and, um, the ways that the United States has, um, often, um, treats, um, immigrants, women of color in particular, um, those, those, um, all of those complexities can be found in the story of Filipino nurses in this country. And, um, you know, Filipino nurses were exponentially more likely to die of COVID during the height of the pandemic than were other nurses. Um, and researchers looking into that um, found that it was because Filipino nurses were more likely to be working um, more dangerous um, in more dangerous environments in hospitals that perhaps didn't give them enough PPE. Um, and so, um, yeah, Filipino nurses are, um, are, a, are a big part of the nursing workforce in this country and, um, and have certainly been um, a part of uh, the way that um, nurses are undervalued and the ways that you can see sort of layers of xenophobia and, um, and racism within that. Well, then they deserve Robert's praise because Robert writes, when I brought cannolis for the nurse caring for my mom in the chemo infusion clinic, I said to them, I know that it is powerful medicine that she is receiving here, but I think it pales in comparison to the healing power she gets from your care. God wow. bless nurses. 
That's right. <laughs> and Eric, Eric sort of, you know, underlines what you just talked about in the pandemic and what nurses went through. He says, I worked in an ICU for eight years and the pandemic and the lack of support from our corporate hospital and government broke many of us. I suffered yeah. PTSD, anxiety and depression due to the environment I had to work in. We are care providers and now it's much harder to muster that caring mindset. I know mm -hmm. many nurses who suffered greatly during the pandemic and it didn't have to be so bad. If only we would be listened to and valued. I don't think there's a nursing shortage as much as a work environment that is unattractive and dangerous to those who may want to work in the hospital. Mm -hmm. You underline many of those points in your book, but let's bring quickly a caller into the conversation. Uh, Heather in Menlo Park, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to say I have, um, I'm 50 years old. I've spent the past 20 years in and out of um, hospitals because I've had a lot of gastrointestinal issues. Um, so surgeries, and I've been really fortunate to have wonderful surgeons and doctors. But at the end of the day, um, it is the nurses who have sustained me during that time. Me, not only me, but my family. Um, I get teary and emotional thinking about this because a good quality mm -hmm. nurse really makes or breaks a hospital stay. Um, my now 19-year-old remembers when he was two visiting me in the hospital and scared. And a nurse mm. made him laugh with all the tubes coming out of my mm. body. Um, and she turned it into something that he remembers positively to this day. And when a nurse comes on, like, to a shift and you know, oh, this is one, like, I've developed a great relationship with, like, physically it changes everything and the trust and the nurses are able to see people as more holistic and human and it makes all the difference in the world. So I just really, it's like a thank you. Um, and you can hear how emotional I feel, but they are a large part of, like why I am where I am today and as healthy as I am. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Wow, Heather, thank oh, you I so much. You. Yeah. I really hear you, I hear you, I really do, yep. I mean, this is the thing, right? The juxtaposition between um, the comment that you got and then, and then Heather's call, um, you know, it is that relationship. I think it's so easy to, to say oh relationship it sounds kind of woo woo but it's really not it is the bedrock of the effectiveness of nursing is in that relationship because there's so much there um there's so you know there's that is a source of a lot of nursing's knowledge is that very careful attention to people and and then what that means to you as a person who is ill in the hospital like the attention to you and to your family um i just think it is so powerful and um, perhaps in our current system it is hard to quantify but it is um, uh, you know it's absolutely indispensable and um, you know the comment that you got from the nurse previously you know the idea that um, nursing is not valued in this country and our, our I will say our, our medical system is just simply not set up to value them as they should be valued um, but you can hear I mean we all have these stories right Absolutely. I mean, I don't I don't actually know the data very well on nurses, but I'm a health reporter when I'm not subbing for a forum. Yeah. And there was some really interesting research about the placebo effect and whether or not 
um, you go into an office and, you know, sort of the doctor title on the wall is crooked and he comes in and he's rude or she comes in and she's rude and, and how a patient will heal just basically based on how they're treated. So if the doctor's, you know, their title or their you know, accreditation is, is straight on the wall and the doctor or the nurse comes in and is, is friendly and warm, mm -hmm. then, then, then the, heal, the wound will actually heal faster. And so it's, it's evidence. I don't know, is wow. there similar data showing, you know, basically how well someone is cared for by a nurse or showing the yeah. the value of nurse. Do we have any numbers, statistics to sort of show? Yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Um, that's so interesting. Um, yes. Well, there you know there there is a lot of research to this. I mean, my favorite thing to to tell people is that um, the higher the level of nurse staffing in a hospital, the more likely you are to be discharged alive. So, um, there, you know, this is research over decades that has shown that um, it's, you know, the amount of time that your nurse has to, to be with you physically, to be with you, to take care of you, and it's, you know, um, all in that, in that, you know, there, it's not just that they are performing and, and, you know, doing any procedures or medication management that you need, but it is also in that being able to pay attention to you, you know, their assessments. So in their assessments, talking to you, looking at you, as you said, touching your leg, all of these things is giving them information about you and the way that that makes you feel in turn. So they then will, they're like almost like an early warning system. You know, they, they can tell if someone is perhaps showing signs of mental decline and is that because they're perhaps going to have a stroke? Are they in liver failure? You know, all of those things, it's really about the nurse's presence um, and what they know and what they notice. And then, you know, they also pull in other disciplines when needed. So they kind of like air traffic control. And so when your nurse has the time to be there with you in, when if you are hospitalized, um, you know, and, and when we talk about high levels of nurse staffing, what that really means is like a nurse to patient ratio. Um, so how many patients your nurse has dictates how much time he or she can spend with you. And then when, how well, yeah, and how then likely how well. you are going to live. <laughs> exactly, like. exactly, or have a good outcome. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, let's say I, let's go to Patty. Let's bring a caller, and I think she's going to really underline what we're talking about. Patty in Menlo Park, you're on the air. Oh yes, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I was excited to hear about this topic. Thank you for um, having this discussion. I'm almost 75 years old. Um, I've been a nurse since 1972 when I graduated uh, from with a Master of Science in Nursing. Um, what attracted me to nursing, why I wanted to be a nurse, is that I love helping people and I love science. Um, and the program that I uh, got into it was holistically oriented. Uh, I liked that, that it looked at the whole person. Um, before I got into that nursing program, I applied to medical school. And uh, in an interview with a physician for one school, I was asked uh, the question, tell me, young lady, why aren't you out there looking for a husband? Um, anyway, uh, the <laughs> dean of the nursing school where I went to college pointed me to the, um, this program uh, that led to a Master of Science in Nursing without um, any nursing background, a bachelor's in any field except nursing. So... Um, Given that background and my love of science and helping people, I'm still practicing, thankfully, um, as a school nurse last year at a high school and this year at an elementary school, TK through 8. Beautiful, beautiful Wonderful. history there, Patty. Thank you so much for sharing. Really appreciate it. 
Uh, let's bring another caller in, uh, Journey in Oakland. Uh, you're on the air. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call. Thanks for having this program. Um, I really appreciate a program that is um, bringing forth uh, the, the expertise, the clinical expertise that nurses bring to the table and not just talking about the tropes that often um, like us being caring and kind. Um, and when we, I just would like the one plug in, I'd like to say when we um, talk about clinical care, when we exclude nurse practitioners from the conversation, um, we're really doing a big, great disservice because physicians um, and nurse practitioners are providing a lot of the primary care in our communities. Thanks. I'll take uh, my comment off the air. Yeah, Sarah, talk yeah. about, you know, I think nurses often are categorized as sort of your intake nurse or, you know, right. sort of quick quick nurse before the doctor comes in. But talk right. about the wide breadth of, of nurses that are that are out there. Yeah, there are so many different kinds of nurses. That's the thing I think also people don't know that. I think that's right. Um, so in terms of, you know, different um, different levels of practice, of course, you have um, you have um, everything um, from nursing assistants through um, licensed practical nurses, registered nurses, and then advanced practice nurses. And all of these nurses, so those are like licensures, right? Um, which and, and your license defines a certain scope, but then nurses have different expertise within their practice. So, you know, you might find an RN who has expertise in neonatology. Um, you, you might have um, an advanced practice nurse who's a specialist in anesthesia. Um, and so, and nurses truly work everywhere and they do everything. Um, and um, yes, you know, in terms of advanced practice nurses, which includes nurse midwives, um, nurses who give anesthesia and um, nurse practitioners, um, they, they have a very, very wide scope of practice. Um, and they're very important in terms of, um, you know, in this country, we don't have um, people don't get access to the care that they need. And so when nurse practitioners can provide things like primary care um, and preventative care and, you know, on and on, um, that that is really important because not everyone has access to that. But whether or not advanced practice nurses are able to practice to the full extent of their licenses depends on what state they're in. So there are different state laws about that. Well, let's um, go into that. We're, yeah. we're just about to, we're bumping up against a break there. But I, I mean, I think what I'm hearing and sort of underlying is that you shouldn't hesitate if a nurse practitioner is available to take <laughs> care of you. You shouldn't no. hesitate. In, term, exactly. in fact, I would jump for that, personally. Jump for that. I, All right. Yes, I would prefer it. <laughs> We're talking to journalist Sarah DiGregorio about her new book, Taking Care. And we want to hear from you. Has a, how has nursing impacted your life? Is there a nurse you'd like to highlight or a story? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. Or you can give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Stay with us. We want to hear your stories about a nurse maybe that's impacted your life or maybe you are a nurse and you want to tell us about your profession. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking to journalist Sarah DiGregorio about her new book, Taking Care, the story of nursing and its power to change the world. And we want to hear from you. Has a nurse touched your life or impacted your life? Maybe you're a nurse. What keeps you in the profession? Tell us your stories or email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call right now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Jonathan writes that um, he's a doctor. I'm a retired physician who considered it considered it a professional obligation for the good of my patients to treat my nurses, nurse colleagues with respect. A few months ago, I was on the phone with a nurse at the specialty pharmacy that dispenses one of my medications, and she said that she could not make certain recommendations because she was, quote, just a nurse. I asked if she would take some feedback and then advised her not to say just a nurse because she is a professional with an important role and she should not devalue herself. She said I made her day. Let's go to Kristen uh, in Union City. Kristen, you're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I had a situation when I, during the pandemic, um, my mother was um, dying and, in, and oh, sorry, and I was not able um, to get to her. And the I, she was in ICU and the lovely nurse, he was very clear with me about what was going on with my mother. He was very clear in ways that the doctors weren't. And it meant so much to me that he took that time. The other thing that he did was he told me, frankly, she's got about a few hours left. And I said, well, I can't be there. And I would love to be able to talk to her. Hmm. In the ICU, they didn't have phones in the room. And he said, Let me call you from my personal cell phone. He called me. He sat his phone on her chest, and I sang her her favorite hymn. He said to me before he set the phone on her chest, he said, just talk as long as you want. I'll come back and get the phone at some point. It meant everything to me because it's the only goodbye I got. Mm. What I struggled with afterwards was how to thank him. I ended up finding in Jacksonville, Florida, where I don't live, a place that had some kind of bouquet, and I sent it to that floor, and I put his name on it, and I hope he got it, but I have no idea. And that's my question. How do we say thank you to these people that did life, gave us life-changing moments, maybe saved our lives, whatever the situation? How do we say thank you? Oh my gosh, what a great, what a, what an incredible question. What an incredible story. Um, you know, I think what you're doing right now is in a way a thank you to him. Um, you know, I hope he got the bouquet. Um, but I think just speaking whenever you can about the power of what that nurse did for you and your mother, um, the effectiveness of it, the being clear with you, because that's what you needed. Um, it's, um, 
I think people need to hear these stories and a lot of people have similar stories. And when there's something really powerful about being like, oh yeah, I had something like that happen with a nurse too. And then it's in the multiplicity of the stories that people I think can come to a realization like, wow, you know, it's not about nurses are nice, they're caring. Of course, they make us feel, you know, oftentimes they they make us um, feel good. But I think that when you share that story, that is a way of thanking that nurse. And I also think that, um, you know, anytime you hear about, um, you know, any kind of legislation that affects nurses, you know, find out how nurses feel about that. And then, you know, call your representatives and advocate for um, what the, you know, what nurses who actually work every day um, are, are saying about certain legislation, because um, that can make a really big difference for them. So, you know, I think just, you know, exactly what you're doing. I think it's really powerful. Absolutely, Kristen. I would underline that. I mean, my eyes, I was glad I didn't have to talk right at the end there because I was told my eyes were full of tears. <laughs> it was really, really touching. And I think the next time I'm in the hospital, I'll probably be nicer to a nurse. So hopefully all our listeners will be infused with that feeling as well. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Let's bring another caller in. Uh, Susie in Richmond, you're on the air. Hi, um, I wanted to call in and speak to the um, the barriers of becoming a nurse and moving around in nursing. Um, nursing is, for some reason, it's patched together. You have to, you know, if you go the route of, you know, people think, oh, it's two years to become an associate in nursing, and you can do anything with it. But that's really not true. Um, it takes about five years on average to get all your prerequisites done just to apply for programs. The programs, each program has their own sets of of, um, of prerequisites. So some are more social science based, some are more psychiatry, psychology. And so you can't even do the one set of, it's not like going pre-med where you can take these set of classes and you're set up to apply to multiple programs. You have to pick a program. And if you were going to go and do, let's say you take five years and and then get into a two-year LVN program, then you have to do another year prerequisites and another year to get your ADN, and then you have to do another year prerequisites and another two years to get your BSN. I mean, my brother went through, and he received two masters and a PhD faster than I could get a BSN. <sighs> and so I mean, it's really the, the, the way that it's set up. So we don't have very many nurses at the top, um, you know, very few doctors nursing, and um, and and then it's very difficult to get to get hired and to move around. There's no there's very few nurse grad new grad programs in the Bay Area. The Bay Area, I know, is an anomaly. Um, we have a lot of highly trained, skilled nurses here, and it's very difficult to find jobs as a new nurse. I have been a I graduated with my bachelor's um, right before pandemic, and there was a hiring freeze, and then there was nothing, and so I could not get acute care experience. I received um, I worked at a at a subacute facility for a year and then um, and tried to get in, um, but I could not. I still don't have acute care experience and I'm not qualified any longer for new grad programs. And so um, I've been doing home hospice for two and a half years, which I love. It's great. But I would love to be a hospital nurse and acute care nurse. And I was hoping to move around as like you spoke about before, where, you know, sky's the limit. You could do L&D. You could do lots of different things with nursing. But the reality is that those, all those avenues are not really open to you. It takes five to 10 years to change specialties or move around. So I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you. 
Yeah. That surprises me, uh, Sarah. I mean, over the years, I've all I've heard is there's not enough nurses. So yeah. do you hear this often? Well, I think what the caller is speaking to is really, um, first of all, the idea of the nursing shortage, quote unquote, is is not really a true nursing shortage at all. It's a it's sort of a bunch of different problems. Um, primarily a retention problem overall in the United States, I would say, as a result of bad working conditions. But what the caller is speaking to is a problem in the pipeline, which is really also a, a big, big issue here. Um, yes, there are, um, you know, in terms of, you know, I'm sure that what the, what the caller is speaking to is, um, it sounds extremely difficult. I know that there are more people who want to go into nursing school than there are seats. That's qualified people who want to go into nursing school. There aren't enough seats for them. So if we have a quote unquote nursing shortage, that's certainly something that should be remedied. The problem is that nurse educators are paid a fraction of what they could make in clinical work. And so many people choose not to work um, in nursing education. So because it's quite criminally underpaid. And, and you know, so that's that's an undervalued, that's a choice we're making. That's an undervaluing. Um, and, you know, yes, I would say um, I have heard, I haven't heard problems with people as much, people getting hired into hospitals. Um, California might be a different beast on that. Um, but I would say, you know, <clears throat> what the caller brought up in terms of associate's degrees and then needing to also get her BSN, um, a lot of hospitals have phased out the hiring of registered nurses with an associate's degree. So a registered nurse has passed the licensing test. That's the NCLEX. Any registered nurse has passed the same licensing test, um, whether they have an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. Um, but um, in general, hospitals are phasing out um, hiring of nurses with associate's degrees. Now, there's reasons for that, but... It, it can be quite problematic because there is, again, what, what the caller is speaking to is these incredible barriers set up to becoming a nurse, and those barriers affect some people more than others. So, for instance, registered nursing is disproportionately white. Um, when you set up all these barriers to becoming a nurse, it's people who from, from marginalized and underrepresented communities who are hit the hardest. So, um, you know, um, people from low-income communities, people from black and brown communities um, have a really hard time um, in general getting over all those barriers. And so, you know, certainly some people argue that moving towards the BSN as the default for being a registered nurse is serving to keep registered nursing um, disproportionately white, disproportionately, I would say, like middle to upper class. Um, and so, you know, all of those barriers are really real. You touched on, on many different points that could take the conversation <laughs> in many different ways. But instead, I'm going to toss this one to a caller. Uh, Robert in Richmond, you're on the air. Thank you. My question is an ugly one, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I want to know about the economics of nursing and the the movement of medicine moving towards being increasingly a commodity uh, where it's hard to get in. I have found in the past that the best way to subvert the system is to talk to the nurses. They can help me find what I need, and unlike being able to go to the doctor. In a capitalist system, I want to know, um, since, since she has written the history, she forecasts in what is happening. She indicated uh, please forgive me, the sheet of the author, and forgive my 
the point being that what we can expect of nursing in the future. She commented on the retention problem. I am aware personally of people that I know who are in nursing talk about how nurses are being treated in hospitals, certainly how they were treated through COVID. And in a capitalist structure, not not unlike teachers and other people who are doing uh, human's work to, to, to actually help people, Nurses. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's you're kind of at the heart of it. Like, how does capitalism? What's the role of capitalism in this whole dilemma? Yeah, um, you know, I I will speak specifically to the to the medical system that we have, which I think of as you know really a medical industry. It's a fee for service um, system or systems. We don't really have one system. We have a patchwork. Um, the problem with our current healthcare or medical system is that. Um, it is, it, it, it is ruled by capitalism and, um, it's set up as a marketplace instead of the idea that people ha- people's healthcare is a human right. People have a human right to access the healthcare that they need. Um, and what happens to nurses in that system? Well, nurses expertise is neither fully, um, utilized nor is it fully valued. Um, because nurses are working on that more, that broader, more holistic level. So specifically, the way it works is that in a hospital, the nurses are considered a hospital expense. And that is because of the way we have set up our fee for service. So physicians make a diagnosis and then you have a diagnosis code for your insurance and then they have procedures or medications that they can perform to help you with that diagnosis and all of that brings in money to the hospital those are billable right nurses on the other hand within a hospital context are considered an expense almost like supplies or food it's wrapped up into the room and board fee that is billed to your insurance so really it's like the effectiveness of nursing the labor of nursing um, the expertise of nursing is completely obscured by our financial system Um, it's just you know it's it's almost like um, nurses are considered um, you know like 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 bed linens or something in this in this financial context is really, really bad. And it doesn't actually reflect their value. Um, and so I think as long as we have that kind of a system, um, nurses, you know, we're going to continue to have a problem retaining nurses. I, I think that we need to fundamentally change our healthcare system if we want to actually solve the problem. I mean, I think we've put Band-Aids on things for a long time, and nurses just keep working sometimes, even when things are are really, really difficult for them, right? Um, but absolutely, um, I mean, yeah. I've heard over and over and over over the years, you know, trying to trying to get a nurse to talk about her her or his work and and really sing their own praises. I mean, these people are just angels. <laughs> it's so hard to get a nurse to interview a nurse and and really any healthcare worker and really get them to talk about the work that they do. They just really are incredibly sort of intrinsically giving people. This is Forum and I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim and we're talking to journalist Sarah DiGregorio about her new book, Taking Care, the story of nursing and its power to change the world. And we let's sneak in a call here before the end of the hour. Uh, Helen and you're in Sebastopol. You're on the air. Hi, thank you for taking my call. 
Um, this is an emotional issue for me. I'll do my best to get through as quickly as I can. I was greatly influenced by nurses who cared for my father 30 years ago. He died now. I since had a brain tumor six years ago. I was in the Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital with wonderful nurses who helped me through that. I was feeling very lonely. I really wanted to hold a cat. I had a cat, and I asked for one. Um, Of course, they couldn't bring me a cat, but a nurse did bring me a teddy bear to hold to soothe me through that time. When I was in rehab at Sebastopol Apple Valley um, Rehab, there was a CNA nurse there who brought me a little cat finger puppet to help soothe me through that Mm -hmm. process. And currently, I'm a caregiver for my 98-year-old mother who is suffering from Alzheimer's and mobility issues. Um, And I try to follow what I learned from those nurses in taking care of her. And as far as she goes, she's Mexican. She wanted to be a nurse when she was younger. She applied to go to nursing school and was turned down because her skin was brown. Mm. Helen, thank you so much for sharing all of that really touching call to to wrap up the show. There's several more comments from listeners. I'll just read maybe one here from Daniel. He says, my primary doctor, I imagine, or sorry, my primary care for the last 14 years is an awesome nurse practitioner at the VA Medical Center in San Francisco. I'm very grateful I was not assigned a doctor when I moved to the Bay Area. I'm a hospice chaplain, and I love, 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 love the nurses I work with, and they provide incredible care for their patients. I sing their praises all the time. We've been talking about uh, nursing and the power of nursing to change the world. I we just barely touched on, on the com- on the questions and and all that Sarah D. Gregorio writes in her new book. I highly recommend picking it up. It's called Taking Care: The Story of Nursing and Its Power to Change the World. Pick up a copy. Thank you so much, Sarah, and thanks to all our listeners for their calls and comments. Again, I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. Um, as we heard, go out there and and hug a nurse, Sarah. Thank you. So so much. Appreciate your time. Oh, Leslie, thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.